Welcome. I'd like to add my welcome to Pastor Brad's. My name is Matt. I'm also one of the pastors here. And thank you, uh, just like Brad said, thank you for braving the snow and the ice and the cold, especially the cold, to be here. They say the, uh, the Inuits have over 100 words for snow. And uh, this last week was certainly some of them. So <laughs> please find a Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we'll be this morning. 1 Corinthians Chapter 11. These past few weeks, we've been looking at a few of the most fundamental commands uh, of, of Christ, the most foundational commands that he has, three of them as a matter of fact. We looked first at his call to all men and women everywhere to follow him. Brad talked about what it means to follow Jesus and how the importance of following him. Last week, we looked at his command to baptize Christians baptize his followers and everything that that entailed. And today we're going to take a look at his command to do something in remembrance of him. Do something in, in remembrance of him. Specifically this, uh, specifically this ritual meal that he gave his followers to observe. Now, from our branch of the Christian family tree, we're sort of anti-ritual. So when I say Jesus gave us a ritual to observe... A lot of our, including mine, a lot of our skin starts to crawl a little bit. But let me just say, there's only two that he gave us. There's only two rituals, baptism being one and communion being another. And when I say ritual, I just mean something that we're supposed to do frequently, the same way every time to everybody who's involved. That's what I mean by ritual. Ritual is not a bad word, I promise. Uh, this ritual, it goes by a few names depending on your uh, church traditional background, there's the word communion, which is the one we typically use. It's probably the most common uh, word for what we're talking about, communion. Uh, that's the word we use. It's communion Sunday. It's just the easiest one of all of these to say is why it's most popular. The Lord's Supper is another, uh, in, in our kind of branch of the uh, Christian family tree, another very popular way of saying this. Eucharist is another one that comes from, the Greek word means to give thanks. And it just comes from the fact that Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, Eucharist, and broke it. And so they just take that word Eucharist from the word to give thanks. Communion, by the way, comes from a word that means sharing together. So we share in the body and blood of Jesus during this time. The Lord's Supper is pretty self-explanatory. There's another phrase, the breaking of bread. We find that in Acts chapter 2. And then there's, a, in uh, the Roman Catholic tradition, there's the word mass, uh, which just comes from a Latin phrase that is at the end of every single, every single service, in the Latin liturgies, classically throughout history, they would say, ite missa est. That means go, you are sent in Latin, and uh, you are sent being kind of Jesus' great commission. And so they just took a little word, mass, out of that. They snipped the word mass out of that, and that's why they call it mass. So it's kind of, I think it's funny that, uh, and you would probably all do the same thing, that they named their service after that, you can go now, part. So <laughs> I, I, I like, that's great. They're not making fun of it. It's just funny to me. But I'd like to do, with all the different ways that Christians have practiced this throughout the years, um, I'd, like to, I'd like to talk about what we at Stonebrook see communion as being about. And I'd like to do that, not by sitting up here and, and reading some paper to you, but to rather look at the scriptures rather than some other statement of faith. Look at the scriptures to take a look at what does the Bible say clearly about the Lord's Supper? about this special meal we're supposed to celebrate together. And I think for all the differences out there, 
there's really only two ways to go wrong. There's lots of different ideas in churches about what communion is, what it's for, how you should do it, and there's really only two ways to go wrong. And the first way to go wrong is to overcomplicate it, to get too mystical and magical about it. And I say magic, I kind of mean that. Um, that this, this, there's some power, some, some special power in the bread and in the wine itself that like, is really important. And if I eat this, then I get some special power. And I would say that for a lot of history and for much of, much of especially the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox world out there, uh, th- that's kind of the idea. They're, they overcomplicate their theology. And I'll say there's a spectrum of overcomplication to undercomplication, to oversimplification. And you can, you can actually trace by denomination where they sit on this spectrum of overcomplicated to oversimplified, okay? And I'll just say that in our church's history, where we come from culturally, from uh, kind of a, a brethren background is where, you know, historically the people that started our church, they kind of came from that church mindset. We in our church, and this is not a criticism, it's just a statement, we tend to oversimplify, okay? So we sit kind of real close to this, I would almost say, boundary edge of being too oversimplistic in our understanding of communion. And my goal, again, not to criticize, but my goal this morning is to strengthen our understanding slightly and move it, not, uh, not over, I don't want to overcomplicate, I just want to move us inbounds a little farther, if that makes sense. And I think we can do that by looking at the longest and clearest explanation of communion that we see in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So we're going to take a look this morning at how the Apostle Paul addresses a church, the Corinthian church, addresses a church that's doing it wrong. They're oversimplifying, by the way. In fact, they're just way out of bounds, generally speaking. Um, And if we look at how Paul addresses this church that's doing it wrong, we get to see the things he's concerned about when it comes to communion. And if we look at the things that he's concerned about, we can see the kinds of things that we should major on when it comes to communion, the way we have to think about communion and this thing that we're doing. And it's in these corrections, and it's in these corrections that I think we see a good foundation, good foundation for a strong but simple, but not oversimplified view of communion. And that's what I'm going to argue for this morning. So let's read. I'm going to start in verse 17. I'm just going to read it to you. It's, it's weird to have just said we're in danger of some error and then read a verse that starts correcting error. I don't think we're in danger of the same kind of error that the Corinthian church was in danger of. That's not why I'm doing this, but I do think we get to see some principles here. But first, let's read verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Now, Paul says, now, in giving this instruction, this instruction, uh, meaning the thing he's about to say, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now, that's a crazy statement uh, for a pastor to stand up and say to his congregation, we, it would be better if we weren't doing this. It would be better, the thing that you're doing, it would be better to just not do anything. Okay, that's, that's pretty sharp rebuke. Okay, um, So Paul, Paul's got some words for him. So verse 18, and here, listen, start to listen. What are the things that he's concerned about here? Okay. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. 
Indeed, it's necessary that there be factions among you, so that you who are approved may be recognized among you. Now, that's a, that's a complicated little phrase, but he's, what he's saying is it's a good thing. It's a good thing that there's some error here, so I get to bring some clarity and point out where there is good things and get to point out where you need correction, okay? So verse 20, when you come together then, it's not the Lord's supper you're eating. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I don't praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I passed to you. On the night which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of sin. Against, he's guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And in this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why so many of you are sick and ill. And why many have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for death. If we are properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome each other. So what do we see in this passage that Paul's concerned about? I want to highlight a few things. The first thing we see in this passage is a wake-up call to the Corinthians. Wake up, Paul says. Paul has been, by the way, he's been building to this moment in the previous few chapters. He, he needed to address some cliques and some factions that were going on in the church. Probably, here's the historians are kind of, there's not a lot of clarity about exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church, but historians um, looking at other writings we have about how the church operated around that time, probably what was going on here in the Corinthian church was that the rich and the popular and the powerful and the upper class Christians, they were snubbing the poor and the lower class, okay, the needy. Part of, so part of the worship of the early church, it seems to be that they would gather for a meal. They called it a love feast. They would gather on the Lord's Day for a common meal. And they would share a meal together, and then they would worship Christ together. And part of the transition from, worship, uh, from meal to worship or vice versa was this special ceremony called the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Now the church, at that point, they didn't have buildings like we have now. The church would gather in homes. 
Uh, and then we see in Acts, when they were in Jerusalem, the ones in Jerusalem, they'd get together in the temple, um, but they would gather in homes, and especially in the Mediterranean world, uh, there would be a lot of people, so you'd gather in the big homes. We still have that, right? I mean, if we have a community group meeting, and your community group is of size, and you meet in a house, like, you got to find the right size of house, right? And in that day, typically speaking, if you had a large house, you were from the upper class and the wealthy. That's still true. It's just that there's a lot of us in America. The church would gather in the larger homes of wealthier Christians so they could all fit inside the same building, and it's likely that they had to spread out in the house. Now, there probably would be a courtyard or a large room, a great room, we would call them these days, uh, where most of them could gather, but they probably had to gather. They had to kind of overflow into other rooms in the house. Uh, and as you, if you can think of this for a second, a large, diverse social gathering, what happens? Well, birds of a feather tend to flock together, right? So the wealthy and upper class would hang out with their friends, and the lower servant class and slave class would hang out with their friends, probably in a different room. And it seems... At this point, there was some plotting going on where the popular crowd would get there early and get the best seats, the best couch, you know, the comfy one, the best place in the house. They'd eat all the food and drink all the wine. And those that actually needed the food, those that actually uh, needed the provision of this common meal because they couldn't afford it for themselves, they were left to go without. And so Paul, he calls a technical foul, a timeout. And he says, you think you're celebrating the Lord's Supper, but you're not. Now, ooh, that, that um, he, he specifically calls out selfishness and favoritism and some other things, but this would have been like a, probably like a bucket of cold water on the church, I, I would imagine, especially on the pastors. You know, Apostle Paul, the guy. He just said, you're not actually celebrating the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine? Uh, I can imagine. I can imagine. I, I wonder if you can too. Um, somebody who I really, really respected. Uh, somebody who I had a high regard for. Somebody I, I would shape my ministry based on. Someone who's like, if, I, if this person thinks I'm doing all right, I'm doing all right. Now, ultimately, that's Jesus. Of course, that's Jesus. But in this case, they also had the Apostle Paul who started the church. If you were to come in and look around and go, hold on. And this is not communion that you're doing. The thing you're doing, not communion. I would be like, what? Uh-oh. And some changes would be in order, right? Paul says, step back and take a look at what you're doing. Is this what Jesus wanted us to do when he gave us these instructions? That's why he, I think why he repeats what the Lord delivered to him which, by the way, we find snippets of in the gospel accounts. So I think it's appropriate for us here at Stonebrook this morning as a church and all of us as individuals to kind of snap out of our habits. Our, because here's the thing with communion. It gets very familiar if you've been doing it for any length of time. Snap out of our habits, snap out of our assumptions from time to time and ask ourselves, is how we are approaching this time of worship with our brothers and sisters, is it honoring Jesus? Now, don't worry. I'm not up here from a pulpit saying, it's not, and we got to change everything. That's not, that's not where I'm going with this. I, that's where Paul's going in the passage. 
But I think it's a good, it's a good, it's a good thing for us to like, okay, well, let's examine ourselves before Paul has to write us a letter. Right? <laughs> However that would work. I, anyway. So it's a wake-up call. Second, we see Paul calling them not only to wake up, but, but Paul calling the Corinthian church to examine yourself. Examine yourselves. At the end of the passage here, Paul calls each, each one who is about to participate in communion to examine themselves. And he does it in a way that seems like, okay, from now on, church, whenever you go to take communion, I want you to examine yourself first. Examine yourself. The, you got so far off base because you were doing this uncritically, unthinkingly, and you were just going along with the way the world goes along with dinner parties. So before you take the Lord's Supper, every time I want you to examine yourself. Now, I've heard this, this examine yourself taught in different ways throughout the years. What is he asking us to do when he says examine yourself? Examine yourself for what? And this is important for us. Usually I've heard this taught that we ought to do a lot of really deep and arduous soul searching to make sure that we don't have any unconfessed sin or any broken relationships that we need to like stop what we're doing, not have communion and go like make sure that everything's perfect before we take communion. And I want to just tell you that that's a good thing to do. You should, you should search your soul and see if there, you know, David said it in the Psalms, if there's any unrighteous way in me and you know, Lord, tell me, help me, point things out to me. You should, you should do that. And Jesus said, if you're at worship and you realize your brother has something against you, stop worshiping and go get it right with your brother. You should do that. But I'm not sure that Paul has that in mind here. Okay? It's from elsewhere. So we should do that. And we should do that every Sunday. We should do that every time we take communion. We should do that like every morning. What is he talking about here? The warning to not do this in an unworthy manner. Well, is it that uh, you got to make sure that you don't have any unconfessed sin or unreconciled relationships so you don't take communion in an unworthy manner? Well, maybe partly, but I think he's, he specifically actually calls out the two things he's looking for here in the text. The first one is that we are to recognize the body. And this is a really packed statement. So I want to unpack it just a little bit for us. Paul's calling us, as we receive the bread and the cup, to take a moment and recognize the body of Christ. What does that mean? Well, a few things. First, in everything else that he's talking about, he's talking about division in the church and welcoming one another and no favoritism and no division. So when we are holding the body, when we are holding the, the bread and the cup, we're to recognize the body of Christ. Some churches have taken this to mean this is literally the body of Jesus that you're holding. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, got the cup, got the bread, take a look around. Take a look around you. In fact, why don't you all do that right now? Look around the auditorium. Make awkward eye contact with somebody. <laughs> Take a look around. Recognize the body of Christ. These are your brothers and sisters in Jesus. These are your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Now, here's, no, knowing full well, some of you over here have no idea who these people are over here. <laughs> you don't know their names. That's okay. 
Like maybe start to learn them. But recognize that they're like, if they're in Christ over here, they're your brothers and sisters. Look how different they are from you. Look at how weird this mix of people are. You guys are a bunch of weirdos. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? Look how different you are ethnically. Look how different you are socioeconomically. Look, you know, that means like some of you rich, some of you poor, some of you broke college students. Like, look how, look how, different, look how different you are academically. Some of you have blue-collar jobs, and you were out all last night. Some of you watching on the stream, like you were out all last night, and actually all week, keeping our roads clear, keeping our systems running, keeping our electricity on. So the rest of us, rich people, we could just sit back in our warm, comfy environment and enjoy it. Thank you. Recognize the body and the, the, the many different parts and different kinds of parts from which it is made. Each of us, though so diverse in so many ways, academically, personality-wise, like some of you could care less about the Lord of the Rings and it's my favorite thing. <laughs> How different we are. We're part of the same body, the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. These are your brothers and sisters. When we go to recognize the body, recognize Recognize each other. Recognize something else. Across the street at Ascension Lutheran, right now, they are also taking communion. They are also going to take the bread and the cup. They're your brothers and sisters. Right now, at this probably exact moment, our brothers and sisters down in Des Moines at Walnut Creek Church are taking communion this morning. Same bread, same cup. Skip across the ocean. Last night they did it, probably, you know. Same bread, same cup, recognize the body. I think we're also meant to recognize the thing that makes us part of the body, which is the thing that the bread and the cup symbolize in the first place, Jesus' work for us. So we're not supposed to say, wow, this is literally the body of Jesus. We're supposed to say, Jesus gave his body like he gave me this bread. His body was broken like this piece of bread is broken. He poured out his blood like this juice or wine is, is red and wet. We're supposed to recognize the thing that Jesus did for us. Recognize the body. The second thing he says is properly judge yourself. Properly judging yourself. That's how you eat and drink in a worthy manner. Recognize the body and properly judging yourself. What does that mean? It means this. As you sit or stand there about to participate in this great act of worship with this bread and cup in your hand, think about who you are. Think about the reality of your situation spiritually. You are a great sinner and you have a great Savior. You deserved an eternity in hell. But what did you get instead? Mercy and forgiveness. How? Because Jesus sacrificed his blood and his body for you. Oh, I need this. Just like every other Christian. The thing that makes us worthy to take the Lord's Supper is not our thorough confession of sin and cleaning ourselves up and behaving properly. 
Those are all important things, but that's not the thing that makes us worthy. The thing that makes us worthy is our recognition of our need for the sacrifice we are memorializing with this symbolic meal. That's the thing that makes us worthy. Jesus makes us worthy to celebrate his supper. And that's the thing we're supposed to pause and recognize and properly judge ourselves based on. And this proper recognition and proper self-judgment, it should humble us. I am no different from this slave over here. I am no different from that wealthy dude over there. We all need a savior. And that recognition, that personal self-judgment should lead us to welcome each other at the table and lead us to be excited to invite everybody else to the table to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So examine yourselves in the Next thing he says to do is to remember Jesus. Having woken up, having examined ourselves, what are we then to do? We are to boldly share in this bread and cup together as a church. We're to do so in remembrance of Jesus. I looked it up. Every English translation says, do this in remembrance of me, or this do in remembrance of me, if you're Yoda. I, uh, some older translations are Yoda. This do, in remembrance of me. But they all say, in remembrance of. And I want to make a big deal out of the word remembrance. Because, the, because I do think he's using a technical phrase that is easy for us oversimplifiers to get wrong. He could have used a different phrase if he intended us to oversimplify. But he uses a technical phrase here that is not do this in memory of Jesus. It is in remembrance of Jesus. Matt, that's synonymous in English. What are you on about? Let me try to explain the difference. Paul could have said different Greek words, or written, sorry, different Greek words that would have been translated, do this in memory of Call to mind this thing. That's not what he's telling us to do. He's telling us to memorialize or do something in remembrance. Here's the difference. This is about, this is going to sound weird. This is about reenactment, not recollection. And I don't mean what the Roman Catholics mean when they say we are re-sacrificing Jesus. That's not the thing we are to reenact. The sacrifice is not the thing we are to reenact. I'll get there in a minute. This is reenactment, not recollection. So I want you to think for a second of a wedding anniversary. I want you to think of my wedding anniversary. <laughs> in memory of would be me sitting alone in my office and pulling out a wedding picture and saying, man, that was a great day. Wasn't she beautiful? Who's that kid next to her? How did those two ever make it? That's what 20-year anniversary recollections of pictures start to look like. <laughs> Looking at one of my wedding pictures, I might even like put it in a picture frame on my desk and feel some really good feelings about that day. That's in memory of. In remembrance of is different. In remembrance of our anniversary, we go to our favorite restaurant 
And maybe I get her a gift on the, on the big, on the important days, unlike the, you know, the 10th and the 20th. And the, we celebrate this thing together by spending an evening enjoying each other and each other's presence and celebrating and reminiscing together. Together is the important part. In communion, sharing together, we are not supposed to just sit here and think real hard about what Jesus did. We are to commemorate it and celebrate it. We are to be together with each other as a church and with the one we are remembering. We are not toasting somebody who is not at the table. We are celebrating somebody who is with us. It's like the birthday boy, in a sense. I know that was Christmas, but like communion can be like Christmas in that. We're toasting the host of the meal, the master of the house, when we raise our glass, when we raise our cup. We're at the Lord's table. We're celebrating his dinner. He's the one throwing the dinner party. And we are raising a cup to him. He's the one feeding us. Whoa. We're at the dinner table with Jesus. Celebrating his supper that he gave us. We're to remember Jesus. We are to also, he says next, proclaim what? His death until he comes. That's shorthand. Proclaim Jesus' work. And here's the reenactment. The Roman Catholics believe that we are to reenact Jesus' sacrifice. And they believe that the bread literally turns into Jesus. That is awesome theological gymnastics. <laughs> like, oh, the, it's... it's it's actually a lot of fun if you're into philosophy like I am. But it's just weird. I'm sorry. It's just weird. And I've told that to Roman Catholic theologians, and they say, we know. It's weird. <laughs> we know. It's super weird. It's a miracle. As a matter of fact, they believe, oh, okay, cool. It's a miracle. Uh, but that's not what he said to do. That's not what we are to proclaim. What are we to proclaim? His death until he comes. What does that mean? That does not mean that we are holding a funeral. We are not holding a funeral on communion. Proclamation is an energetic word, and it is to declare the fact that the sacrifice we needed happened. We are rehearsing a victory cry. We are remembering, we are commemorating, we are reenacting a victory cry. The sacrifice, it happened. The debt, it has been paid. The captives are all now free. Sinners are all now forgiven. And we're supposed to keep this up until he comes. And finally, have that wedding feast together with him and every Christian from all over the world throughout time. So this meal is like a preview and a review a preview and a preparation for that great day that we are to put all of our hope in. That's why communion is so important. We are casting our minds forward. Just this, we get a little crumb today. We're going to have a feast coming. Communion is a party. 
Now, communion is a very serious party, and we are celebrating a very weighty thing. So there should be this weird mix on communion. And I know we tend to play very introspective, reflective songs, which is right, because we're trying to examine ourselves and call to mind the wonderful work that Jesus did. And that wonderful work comes with a lot of emotion, kind of a wide range of emotion. It's complicated to declare that God died in his humanity for me because I needed it. And now, sinner that I am, deserving of hell though I am, I have been set free from that bondage by his work. Hallelujah. That's a complicated set of emotions. It's a very serious, weighty, deep sort of thing. So who's supposed to do it? How are we supposed to do it? When are we supposed to do it? That's the what. Wake up. Examine yourself. Remember. And proclaim. So who's supposed to do that? How are they supposed to do it? And when are they supposed to do it? Well, different churches differ on who should be allowed to take communion. So who? Well, it goes all the way from one extreme of just anyone without any sort of like checking at all. I'm just going to like leave this pile of bread and some cups over there. And if you want to, come on in. Uh, That's at one end. And at the other end is a really cool thing that I think we should start doing. No, this is not. We need to make sure. (laughs) On the other end of the spectrum, these are all real examples, by the way. On the other end of the spectrum is that Formal membership is required in this specific congregation, and you need an interview with me or one of the other pastors or deacons either the night before or the morning of to make sure that you're good for the, for the week. That's another way that Christians do this. It's called fencing the table. They put up a literal fence in a lot of church architecture. You've seen the fence at the front. That's what it's for. You're not supposed to come in here unless the the elders, the shepherds say it's okay for you to because there is so much seriousness around eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And that is why some of you are getting sick and dying, Paul says here. I didn't even deal with that part. That just goes to how serious of a matter this is. I just told you how to avoid it. Do this in a worthy manner and you're fine. So those are the extremes. I I think um, here at Stonebrook, what we do, our practice has been what's called an open table. And uh, that's kind of some, it's not really like between the two. It's kind of more toward the, here's a pile of bread in the middle, but it's more serious than that. And here's, here's how. We practice an open table. And by that, we mean that we do not require you to be a formal member of Stonebrook Church in order to participate with us. But rather, we have only one requirement, that you are a baptized believer. Now, why do I say baptized believer? I said that last week. And I explained last week that that sort of should be, should be a redundant statement. Um, here's, here's the logic first. Every Christian should be baptized as soon as possible after coming to faith in Jesus. That's one of the things we believe about baptism. And second, communion is for <laughs> believers. And so we say, redundantly, because it matters in our culture, communion is for baptized believers. Now, we're not going to police that. I'm not going to like spring over and like bat the juice out of your hands as you go to take it. Like that would be a lot of fun, but that's not what's going to happen. 
I just want to make sure you know that's what we believe that, that communion is for. And then I'm going to leave it up with your conscience before the Lord. And if I know you well, we're going to have some conversations, okay? And that's true for, from all the elders. Because here's the thing. Baptism is the historic means of professing your faith in Jesus. And you should profess your faith before joining with communion. And I do put that in order. If you do profess faith and you have not been baptized, my counsel to you, this is counsel to you. This is not a, I, 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 what's the difference between the counsel from an elder and a command? It's not a command from God. You're not going to go to hell. That kind, you know, it, my counsel to you is that uh, if you profess faith but have not been baptized, that you do not take communion. Here's why. Let's, let's get a baptism scheduled real quick. Let's do it next week. We just need like 24, 48 hours notice and we get the thing set up and we'll be good and everybody's going to celebrate and it's going to be awesome. But here's, here's, here's the thing. As we discussed last week, baptism, one of the things that it is, is that it's an act of obedience to Jesus. Don't ignore him. Don't ignore him. Don't ignore him in one area and selectively obey him in another area. That is a very dangerous precedent for you to set in your walk with Christ. Selective obedience is disobedience. So here's the thing. It's a really easy thing to fix. It's a really easy thing to fix. And we can talk. Let's talk. Who? So that's who. How should it be celebrated? And here's what I want to say. What I mean, what I mean, what should we use? We should use bread and wine. Juice is fine. Yes, that rhymes. You're welcome. And I want, to, I want to go here. Can we just use anything? I'm watching the clock, John. Don't worry. It's okay. Um, can we just use anything for this? I don't think so. This is as weird as I'm going to get. Some of the pastors might be on the edge of the seat right now. Jesus gave us bread and wine for a reason. There are so many beautiful ties and cross-references to bread and wine throughout the scriptures. From Genesis 14 all the way to the end in Revelation. And this meal is meant to call to mind those things. And when you run across those things in the scriptures, you are meant to call to mind the Lord's Supper. So Doritos and orange soda, I did, I did that one time in my younger days, once or twice, maybe I did it twice, okay. That would disconnect the symbol from what it's symbolizing in too many important ways. Uh, now, I suppose you could put another layer of symbol on it. We don't have any wine or grape juice. So uh, we do have orange soda. So pretend that this is purple. And let's imagine that it represents Jesus' blood. I, I do want to say that if you don't have some problem substituting bread and wine for something like Skittles and iced tea, if that doesn't trigger your soul in some way, uh, you are committing the error of oversimplifying what's going on here. Now, you're not a sinner. You're not like a specifically bad sort of person. You're just oversimplifying, and I would call you back to reverence toward what's going on here. I also keep saying wine. While Stonebrook has and is going to continue using grape juice, that's intentional. It's fine. 
Grape juice is a fine concession, given the cultural complexities of alcohol in this country since the 1920s or so. That's the only reason we have grape juice, by the way. Welch's grape juice was invented because of a weird little legal thing that swept the nation in the 1920s and 30s. That still bothers some of us. So just think of grape juice as alcohol-free wine, and we're good. (laughs) Easy. It's easy. When should we celebrate it? When should we celebrate it? We should celebrate it. Well, okay, I don't think the scriptures are clear on how often. It just says as often as you do it. Often. You should celebrate it often. The scripture does not give us a prescription, but this is an area that I think we might be a little off in as a church. Something that we as pastors might need to give some examination to. Because the earliest traditions and even some of the scriptures seem to indicate that the early church did it at least weekly and most churches around the world still do weekly. But that's not what's important. Frequency is important. It is important that we do it. It is important that we do it frequently and monthly is fine for now. We just, it's just we never used to do it on Sundays. And now we do it monthly. So we're making progress. This is great. But we should celebrate the Lord's Supper frequently. And why wouldn't we, given the things that it symbolizes? And finally here, I just want to say in closing, the Lord's Supper, in short, it's the ultimate sermon illustration. The breaking of bread, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the communion, all names come from the scriptures. It's like the ultimate sermon illustration. The bread, it represents the bread. There's nothing here. Yes, it is. I'm going to steal this from the band. The bread and the juice. Alcohol-free wine. The bread represents Jesus' body, tortured and broken in punishment for sins he did not commit. We did. We deserved that punishment, but he was glad to take that punishment for us. The wine, it represents his blood spilled as an atoning sacrifice, the required payment for the debt we owe God for our sin. Freely he gave it for us. Willingly, gladly, joyfully he gave it for us so that we could be restored to relationship with him. For the Christian, the practice of frequently, together as a body, pausing to reflect on the state of your soul and the beautiful reality of all of your brothers and sisters around you here, and most especially reflecting on the host of the meal himself, Jesus, is one of the most significant of all the spiritual disciplines of all of our spiritual practices that help us grow in our walk with Christ. Let's not underplay it or oversimplify it. Let's not overcomplicate it. Baptism, baptism, baptism is a really powerful physical symbol meant to represent spiritual rebirth. It's meant to be experienced once in your Christian life as a marker of our passage from death to our old life to resurrection in the new life with Jesus and his body in the church. But the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is meant to be experienced a thousand times throughout your Christian life. So let's close our service.
by celebrating it together. The band can come up and join me. I'm going to pray here. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you saw fit to stoop to our level, to give us physical things. First of all, you took on flesh. You took on humanity. You added humanity to your divinity so that we would know that you know us. Lord, you gave us physical symbols, baptism and communion or your supper, your, the Lord's Supper, because we are physical beings and we are need, in need of reminder. So Lord, as we celebrate this today, Lord, I pray that we would, we would follow Paul's exhortation to this church to pause, wake up, break our habit, and reflect, is this how God, how Jesus, you gave us this meal, how you want us to celebrate. Are you pleased? Are you pleased, Lord? And you are. Help us examine the state of our soul, recognize our need for a Savior, recognize that we have it in you, recognize the body, that we have such amazing brothers and sisters from all over the world, even here, present with us physically this morning. Help us to remember, do this in remembrance Lift the cup to the host of the meal, to the master of the house and the Lord of our souls. Help us to proclaim the fact that the death that needed to occur happened once for all. Lord, guide us through here. Guide us in our reflection. Lord, would you, Holy Spirit, speak to us in our souls through your words Guide us in remembrance and celebration and reflection of you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.